Father, we uh, come this morning rejoicing in the reality that our waiting for you is never in vain. Lord, that our expectation of salvation is only rooted, Lord, not in an expectation that man has made, but instead, Lord, uh, according to the word of promise. And so, Father, as we come this morning, we come rejoicing in the fact that that salvation is had. It's had in Christ and in Christ alone. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes there. And, Lord, even as we walk through this psalm that we just sang, I pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of the loveliness of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the depth of our sin. Lord, the, the, the unconquerable foe that it was. But Lord, also see that there is a sweet and blessed remedy, a balm for that wickedness of sin, and his name is Jesus. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm 130. Uh, This morning, what I wanted to do is take a look at uh, the true nature, really, at the beginning of this passage of sin, and really the, the emotional or perhaps even affectionate response to sin. How is it that we respond to sin? How is it that Israel responded to sin? And, and how is it that in our response to sin, and our understanding of its true wickedness, we can more rightly and perhaps more quickly cast ourselves on Christ? Um, I am largely convinced in our day and time that we have forgotten the true wickedness of sin. Um, Not only have we forgotten the true wickedness of sin, it often seems that we are more frustrated and angry with what sin produces than sin itself. When I think about this, I think about when I was uh, about 10 years old, um, most of you know that I, I had a cancer diagnosis when I was 10, and I remember the first time that I was angry about having cancer. It wasn't, it wasn't fear or anything like that. I became immediately angry and frustrated because I was losing my hair. This is how silly it is when we are angry with the products of sin as opposed to sin itself. I wasn't angry with the cancer. I was angry with the loss of hair. I was angry with a side effect. I was angry with an effect. Instead of hating what was causing all of this, and instead of looking at it and despising this that was producing all types of uh, of bodily harm to me, I was angry at the results. This morning what I want to do is I want to uh, refocus the eyes of hatred, if you will, on sin. And I want to give you this quote from Ralph Vining. He is the author of a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. He says this, Sin is the quintessential evil. It has made all the evils that, that there are and is itself worse than all evils it has made. It is so evil that it is impossible to make it good or lovely by all the arts that can be used. He essentially says, when we look at the world, you see wickedness, you see evil. But it's important that we understand that all of those things, wickedness, evil, all flow from one single source, and that source is sin. It enters into our world in Genesis chapter 3, and we have been glad participants in it since the moment that we were born into the world, as I would even go back further, since our father Adam ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and fell. And yet I fear that we no longer hate sin, nor do we find ourselves deeply dismayed at sin's effect in us and what it does and its offense to the holy God. Instead, we are angry with the things that it produces. And this morning, what I'd like to do is point our attention to this psalm because I am convinced that this psalm begins with an understanding and an awareness of the depth of human sinfulness and its offense toward God. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Psalm chapter 130. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. 
Psalm chapter 130, starting in verse 1, says this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning, and I pray that we come this morning, understanding the depths of of wickedness, the depths of sin. Lord, I pray that we could really find ourselves in this first verse. That we could consider sin and how wicked and how horrid it is, Lord, remembering what its effect is on us most certainly. But Lord, that we might come crying out to you for the redemption of our bodies, for freedom from sin forevermore. So Father, we ask you, would you help us in this this morning? But Lord, may we not leave with our eyes fixed on sin. May we leave with our eyes fixed on the great remedy, on the one who is able to stand, on the one who is able to bring about plentiful redemption. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So to start off this passage, it's really important that we understand the context because there is something that was unfolding as Israel would sing these psalms. Uh, really, this psalm, if you'll look at even at the heading in your, uh, in your text, it'll probably say a song of ascent. And the whole concept here is Israel is making their way up to uh, Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement. So just kind of consider what's unfolding before you. We have many people making their way in a group toward Jerusalem, and they would be singing these psalms. And you can imagine, really, as you're pushing forward to Jerusalem to go toward the Day of Atonement, to rejoice in the remission of sin, to rejoice in the promise that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, that there would be great celebration. That as we read through these psalms, we would find great rejoicing, great singing, and a celebration even as they're making their way to Jerusalem to see how God is providing, but ultimately will provide in the person of Christ. But then you have this interruption. And to just kind of give the understanding of what's unfolding, I always picture these men making their way to Jerusalem, and what they would be doing is carrying in tow a goat or a calf or a lamb, or even for those who are a bit more impoverished, a bird. And the whole concept is, I'm bringing this up so that it can be sacrificed at the temple. Now just consider the vanity of this when you really think about it. These men are walking up with these goats that they are ultimately making walk many miles just so that they can be slaughtered for their own sin and trespass. It's not the goat's trespass that that the goat is being killed for. And so as they're bringing these livestock up ultimately to be sacrificed, you can imagine that as they're every time that least would perhaps pull, that they would be reminded of the reason they are carrying that goat up to temple. That as they look and as they are walking toward this moment of sacrifice, they are considering the fact that it is their sin that ultimately has produced death. They will watch as this, in, this animal will be slaughtered before them. They will watch blood be spilled. They will watch all of it unfold. And you can imagine the individuals, that they're all singing corporately. All of Israel is singing, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas of mercy. They are considering their own wickedness individually. And as you look at the language of this psalm, it is rather interesting that it is really personal. The idea is in the individual is considering and pondering their own wickedness and also their only means of rescue. Now, the reason this is interesting is because it's not just one individual singing. 
It's every member that's walking with them. They're singing this psalm together. They're considering the depths of the individual wicked. And you have to imagine that as they're examining their self, they perhaps would get lost in the reality of their own sin. When you look at the language of out of the depths I cry to you, I think really when we think about the depths, we immediately go to this emotional place. When someone cries from the depths of who they are, it's this idea of deep within me there's turmoil. There's uh, maybe angst or anxiety over something. But the Hebrew language really gives it a bit more of a vivid picture. The language really indicates that it's this concept of diving deep into even the most isolated of places and being fully aware of your isolation as well as being fully aware of what brought you there. Can you imagine being in the depths of your own soul examining it? Examining the true level of wickedness. Let's consider perhaps before our conversion. If we were to see who we were before Christ rescued us, then we would see these great depths of wickedness. And even after conversion, I still, as I look inward, I still see wickedness, trespass, and sin. And if I give myself over to that, then I'll find myself deeply dismayed and disheartened because there's still the remnants of sin in me. And I am in need of redemption most certainly, but as I am considering these things, I am aware of not only my sinfulness, but the fact that I contribute and have enjoyed this wickedness. And as he tugs on his goat that perhaps brings him back to reality of considering the depths of his own wickedness, he is reminded certainly that his wickedness, that sin brings about death, but he is also reminded that there is a God who has mercy, that there is a God who expresses kindness, who is a God who brings about redemption. And so as we consider the depth of our sinfulness, my hope is that we see it for what it is. We see it as something that is deserving of nothing more than death. And let's define that rightly. It's not death in the sense of, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to breathe one last time here on the earth and I'm going to cease to be. That's not the biblical understanding of death. It is the idea of eternal separation from the good, loving kindness of God and being the object forevermore of his wrath and fury. This is what we mean when we say death. And friends, here's what we don't get. Any sin places us under the just condemnation of God. You think, and we often do think of little white lies, little sins that are not so offensive to God. But friends, they are eternally offensive to God. And we must remember this if we are to always be aware, first of sin's sinfulness, but also of the true grace that is in Christ. We cannot understand the level of redemption until we understand the level of depravity. We cannot understand the level of affection until we understand the level of God's hatred for sin. And so what is said here? He is considering the depths of his own sinfulness and in the depths of his sinfulness, he knows there is no means of redemption. He is alone deep inside of sin. There must be someone who can reach down to him and rescue. And praise be to God, the psalmist goes to the only place where mercy's arm can reach him. He runs to the Father. He says in verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, it is in the depths of our own wickedness that we can see the depths of God's good mercy toward us. That there is no one so deep in sin. There is no one who has been so captivated by it that the merciful arm of God cannot redeem. That the merciful arm of God cannot reach down even in your own deep introspection of your sin. And you think to yourself, how can I be saved? 
And then with Luther, we say, but if I look at Christ, I know, I, I say, how can I be lost? And we see here this call for mercy. And in his plea for mercy, you see this acute awareness of it. And in this acute awareness of it, he understands, the writer does, that there is genuinely a means of mercy. Now, here's what is so lovely about this. That the word of God up until this point has been so clear that there is redemption. There is a means of reconciliation. There is a means of salvation for even these individuals who have not seen the full revelation of Christ. That they know they can run to the Father and they will have mercy there. Now, it isn't because of the goat they have behind them. Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. It does not bring about remission. And so what is it that this individual is considering? Because he knows that there's no means of reconciliation in this goat. There has to be something more. And so his plea for mercy is a plea that demands more. It demands that there is a means of redemption that's more than just the slaughtering of an animal year after year. Friends, the interesting thing about the system that was in place during this day is it pointed to its own futility it said yes see a lamb slaughtered this year yes see a lamb slaughtered this year yes see the lamb slaughtered next year it points to the constant need of of sacrifice and in that constant need of sacrifice it points to one who will be the all-sufficient sacrifice and he brings this forward really by asking a question and it says in verse 3 If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, this question is the most dismaying question that I have ever come across in the Scriptures. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Can we just consider, maybe let's go to the throne room of grace in some consideration. Let's unfold the scene there. The man who comes into the throne of grace, perhaps it is that it's a priest of Israel. He walks in, he begins to discuss the way that he had made sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, but he had never looked forward in faith to the promised Messiah. He stands there pleading his own case. He offers up his own good deeds. He offers up his own study of the Scriptures. And he says, look, Lord, I've given all of my time and energy to this, and, and, I, and I've served you faithfully in the world. And he begins to plead his own case. In the pleading of his own case, the psalmist has already answered the question, will there actually be a man who can stand as he pleads his own case? Friends, all of heaven shouts away with him. If he presents his own deeds, his own works, then he will certainly be cast out. Who can stand before the Lord if he is to count iniquity? Or perhaps it is we would bring it a bit further today. What about the prominent teacher in our day who has devoted all his time and energy to the study of Scripture? Perhaps it is that even in your own study, you have a bit of a puffed chest considering your own labors as you search the Scriptures. And you think, how good and great am I? And even on that day of judgment, you would stand before Him as I believe that many will. And they will say, Lord, I have taught the sheep. I have cared for their souls. And yet, they were disqualified from the race because they never trusted in the promised one. And they will stand there pleading their own case. They will stand there and the Lord will mark their iniquities and they will be cast out into the lake of fire. Or what about the moral do-gooder? What about the individual who has given all of his money, all of his wealth to stand before and exercise mercy to the orphan and to the widow? He has been kind. He has been gracious to everyone that he has come in contact with. But he demands to stand before the throne room, uh, the, the throne of perfect justice, pleading his own case. He stands there and he recalls all of his good and excellent works, all of his lovely deeds before the God of Israel, the perfect, righteous God of Israel. And as he accounts those deeds... God highlights his own wickedness. And in highlighting his own wickedness, they see his iniquity and he will be cast away as well. 
But not only the moral do-gooder, but I think there is one more. The law as my righteousness. The one who stands before God and he takes the law of God and he says, look how great I am. I have been faithful to obey each of the Ten Commandments. I have done all of these things. I have loved you by being obedient to these commands. But these commands, these are the means of my righteousness. And the law that he has placed his hope in will stand over him and condemn him. For there is no means of reconciliation that will be brought about by perfect law keeping because we are unable. Away with you. And this is the whole concept that this psalmist is working through. That they are going up to consider there will be one who is going to walk in to the holy of holies and offer sacrifices for me. There's one who is going to offer up these sacrifices. Who can actually stand before him? And then I see one more. Poor tax collector makes his way in with his head humble, low, looking to the ground because he knows there is no means of him standing there on his own as any, as any reward might come to him because he has nothing. He has no righteousness of his own. He can't present the law and say, look at the law, I've done all these things. He knows the law has found him guilty. He knows that there is no means of reconciliation between him and God and just a man. He knows that even if he were to do all the moral good here below, there is no means of reconciliation for him because God counts iniquity. And then a voice comes from the side. And this voice does not do anything but plead his own case. This voice says, it is my righteousness that clothes him. And how is it that this one can plead the case of such a wicked and ruined sinner? It's because the question here is indeed pointing to the inability of all human beings, but it is also pointing to the only one who can stand before God if he counts iniquity. It's pointing to the only means of redemption. It's pointing to the one who, as he observed the law, he did so perfectly, faithfully, in every moment. He did so in the vast and the minutia. And as he stands before God, God has declared him as righteous. And now this righteous one who Israel had been waiting for pleads the case of all who run to him. The reality is that as we look at this text, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, hear me saying, he marks every iniquity, every one. There is not a single iniquity that the just God of Israel will pass over. Not one. The only means of redemption is for one to stand before God who is free from all iniquity that he might bear mine. And as he bore mine, then I can look at this verse and I can say, yes, out of the depths I cry to you, I know that there's no redemption for my soul. If I look inward and I see my sin, my trespass, all I can do is in the, the I would almost consider the depths of damnation is say, but Christ is merciful. But he is able to reach down and pull me from the depths of my sinfulness. And even should I stand before God on the day of judgment, he will plead my case for me. And I can say with great confidence this next verse, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And it is not a forgiveness of pardon, just a simple passing over. It is the forgiveness of justification that your iniquity has been counted. It has been counted. It's been counted in full. And where can we find it counted? We find it counted in the cross of Christ. He has stood before God without a single ounce of iniquity, sin, or trespass. And in doing so, he has with great joy, astonishingly great joy, borne my sin, iniquity, and trespass. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why did he do this? For the redemption of those who are his. 
And so we say with great confidence, even as we consider the true level and wickedness of sin, that there is forgiveness in God and in God alone. Now, this should give us great confidence because, friends, you cannot cover up your sin as the legalist. You cannot, as a priest, offer up sacrifices to God as a means of redemption. There has been the perfect priest. He has already made sacrifice. And it was all sufficient. Anything added is blasphemy. And so what do we find? We find the true depths of sinfulness, but then we find that should we stand before God, we would be altogether cast off. But if Christ stands before God in our stead, then we can say with the psalmist in verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And isn't that the appropriate response? Fear of the Lord. You know, when we use that language today, we always consider like an actual fear, like an overcoming of, uh, of I can't even consider or think about the things that, that are happening around me because I'm so dismayed about the circumstance. This is not the concept of fear that we are considering. This is the fear of being awestruck, being astounded, being amazed, being altogether undone at the loveliness of the gospel, knowing that should I, should I have stood there, I would have been cast off. But since Christ is there, I stand in awe of him who is able to redeem to the uttermost. It is the only reasonable response that as we consider our condemnation and Christ's redemption of us, that we stand in fear and awe of him with a great and lasting affection that will never fade. Now that does lead us into verse 5. This language of I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And it is important that we understand the historical grammatical context here. And by that I mean, what was the psalmist thinking about? What did this mean to the people who read it for the first time? Friends, Israel was waiting. They were awaiting their promised one. Every time they began to walk toward Jerusalem for the day of atonement, those who looked forward in faith were waiting. They were looking forward to the one who was able to bring about redemption, not year to year, but the one who would make sacrifice once for all, according to the writer of Hebrews. This is what they waited for. But I do want us to to point out a couple of things here because I think that we can see this and then maybe understand how we are to wait on the Lord even here and now. How are we to wait on the Lord? The very first verse says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. Friends, this is a concept of waiting. But the idea of waiting is not of wringing our hands. It is instead a waiting in confidence that the, the, the promised finished work of Christ will actually do what it is promised to do. That not only do you feel the life that Christ gives you here below by the Spirit, when He comes, when He justifies, when the Spirit applies all that Christ accomplished, we get that foretaste of life. And friends, hear me. You enjoy that life here and now. But we must understand that we are still waiting for the redemption of our bodies, according to Romans 8. That when we look here and we see that I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word I hope, friends, we do well to rest in the promises of God. He has given us His Word. He has given us these promises that we might rest in them and genuinely rest in them. Notice the language at the end of verse 6. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Can you consider being a watchman? You're standing guard on the gates of Jerusalem. You're looking over. You're waiting to make sure that no one would come and pillage or attempt to attack Jerusalem at the end of the night. You stay up, eyes open, ready, waiting, laboring, hoping that you would not only keep your own soul, but also the souls of all those behind the walls. What sweeter sight would it be than to see the sun sun rise? Just to see it break at the end of the land. 
Because in that moment, there is immediately this sigh of relief. The night has come. It is safe. And not only is the night safe, therefore I can rest in the fact that no one is coming to pillage our land. No one is coming to attack. No one is coming to take our lives. Instead, I get to go home and go get in bed. I get to go home and rest. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. At the end of this, when we consider out of the depths I cry to you, I'm considering my own sinfulness. There is no more laboring with our sinfulness and the idea that there is a penalty for it. Friends, we genuinely do get to rest under the grace of God. Now hear me, that's not, uh, that's not saying that we do not wrestle with it here below. It's saying that the penalty has indeed been dealt with and dealt with in full. And so we rest in the finished work of Christ in that. Even in our fighting, even in our aiming to see sin put to death in our bodies, we are still resting in the finished work of Christ. And as we rest in Him, and as we rest in Him, we understand one great truth, that we have been redeemed that we have been ransomed, that no longer are we there in the depths, no longer are we alone in isolation, pondering our own sin and trespass. For Christ has redeemed the individual. Christ has redeemed all those who call on Him in faith. But what's most interesting about this text is that at the beginning of the psalm, it is so individualistic. I mean, just notice the language. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Hear my voice, O Lord. And it's just this refrain of, Lord, I need your mercy. Lord, I as an individual need your grace. I need to be picked up, redeemed from the depths of my own sinfulness. But then there's this massive shift in language in verse 7. And in verse 7 it says, O Israel, this is the redeemed man, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, the reason this is so incredibly interesting is because in this shift of language, the writer of the psalm graduates, if you will, from understanding the salvation has been provided for him in an individual way onto this idea of a corporate redemption. A few weeks ago, I said that Christ did not die for the individual. He died for his church. That the idea is that Christ went to the cross to redeem for himself a people. And by God's grace, if you be in Christ, you find yourself amidst the people that he redeemed. That is an individual experience. Each of us understand that by God's grace, I have had the, the, the work of Christ that was accomplished at the cross, applied to my life. And since that's the case, I am in him. That I find myself no longer in the depth, but with him. But what's most important about this is our redemption is not so individualistic that we stand in Christ alone. Friends, we stand in Christ together as a redeemed people. The reason we had Blake read that passage from Ephesians 2 is because what we see in the finished work of Christ is not just the redemption of the individual, but the redemption of all those who belong to Jesus. This redemption brings us into brothers and sisters. It's almost as though as they sang this psalm, they started with this deep introspection, but as they concluded, they began to look around and see it's a cloud of witnesses around them as they made their way toward Jerusalem to see a lamb sacrificed because that lamb, that idea, that shadow was meant to say, this is the one for all of Israel. Friends, Christ died to redeem his bride. And as you look at this language, he says, all Israel, hope in the Lord. This is every soul around me. Would you hope in the Lord? For with him is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. Saints, 
The beauty is that there is plentiful redemption for all who would come to Christ in faith. And they might even in their conversion think of their own individual wickedness. But after their conversion, we see quite clearly that they are bought with the price that Christ paid for his bride. It is an indication that they were not redeemed in isolation. They were redeemed in a corporate sense. Saints, we were redeemed in a corporate sense. This is what it means when we say that Christ died for the church. That he died for his bride. And we see this perhaps most clearly in verse 8. It says, and he will redeem Israel, which just to kind of break this apart, and he will redeem Israel. Israel is the idea of the corporate nation, the the national Israel. He will redeem Israel. And then he says this language is really odd. It's almost a juxtaposition for all his iniquity. Who is Israel here? Who is Israel in this capacity? As As the writer rises and as the reader looks at it, he says, all of Israel will be redeemed, but from all his iniquities, it has in itself the concept of a corporate, a, corporate, uh, a corporate purchasing. That Israel will be redeemed, but he will be redeemed individually. He will be redeemed piece by piece by piece until all the whole is had. And in Ephesians 2, we see this really clearly, this correlation brought to fruition. How do we understand this language of Israel? We understand it by the true Israel, by those who have trusted in Christ by faith. Because friends, there were those who climbed that hill every year to Jerusalem that did not belong to Jesus. They did not look forward to him by faith. But for all of those who were truly Israel, for those who had the faith of Abraham looking forward to the promises of God, all of those were redeemed. And brothers and sisters, they were redeemed just like you and I were. That at the end of the age, when every saint will stand around the throne of God singing, who will be there? All those Christ has redeemed. Many parts, one body. The redemption that we have most certainly is applied individually. But the beauty is that it is, will be applied corporately. That means, brothers and sisters, that even as we consider the depths of our own sinfulness alone, you will never consider the depths of Christ's love for you alone. That there will always be saints with you singing and proclaiming the excellencies of the God who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He redeemed for himself one man. The only one who could do this was the one man who could stand before God if he counted iniquity, Christ Jesus. And in his redemption, we have been ransomed into one body. This should dramatically impact the way that we live in in life together. Because as we look at each person bought by the blood of Jesus, we see them. We see the redemption that Christ has for us, the redemption that Christ has for them, and there should be unique fellowship there. The reason that we're called brothers is because Christ has redeemed us as a family of God. He has redeemed His church, His bride, and He will have it. And so in conclusion, we do well to remember our own individual sin. We do well to remember our own individual justification. But friends, it is rarely taught and rarely considered that the people that you worship with here below will be the people that you worship with in heaven forevermore. We are one body And that is to the praise of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning to rejoice first in our own individual ransoming and our own redemption, even as the scripture says here, in the plentiful redemption that is brought about by Christ and Christ alone. Father, I pray that even as we consider our individual redemption, that we will also consider 
the corporate redemption that took place at the cross as well. Lord, that yes, we were there individually, but by your grace, Lord, there is a multitude without number that was there, that was being atoned for, being redeemed in the cross of Christ. Lord, may that be the great, the great joy of our soul as we worship together here below. Lord, that as Israel would make their way up to Jerusalem to consider the Day of Atonement, we gather each Lord's Day to worship in the reality, to worship in the substance of that shadow. Father, I pray that you would help us to always look to Jesus, to find in Him our all, to find in Him our hope and our joy. And Lord, even when we do our own introspection after we have come to faith, Lord, would you, by your merciful hand, pull us out of the depths. And Lord, in your pulling us out of the depths, may we worship and worship rightly. It's in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen.